This is a special episode of the Raven Report podcast for three reasons. First off, and the most uh, prominent one, is uh, our uh, guest that we have on here, David Dollar of the Brookings Institute, who's going to talk to us about China, tragically died uh, earlier last month. Uh, we haven't had anybody that we've had on that uh, has died like that, so that is something that's very unique. And th- this episode is kind of a summation of his life's work, and so I hope you pay special attention to it. It also is the first of a series that we're going to do on China. Now, David is a, um, a long-in-the-tooth economist who uh, lived in China and looks at China through a very academic lens. And that helps frame the operational environment so that way we really understand kind of the area and the, the, um, the environment that we're working with. Then we're going to go on to uh, Jeremy Goldcorn, who is a, a journalist that lived in China and specialized in is supposedly banned from China for speaking out against uh, Xi Jinping. And then lastly, we're going to come to uh, one of our own from the Dark Rifles, uh, Jacques Van Ruin, who's now a chaplain in the Air Force. He, to a lot of people surprised, actually lived in China for an extended period of time and brings a very, very different perspective than the first two, whereas the first two are very academic. Uh, Jacques going to be very, very uh, street-level oriented, and so what it's like to actually live and breathe in China and very much has a kind of a pulse on what the culture and the conversation's like. So I hope you like this. It also supports the the new intro uh, featuring uh, Colonel James from the, a few episodes ago. So let's get after it. We have a professional obligation for the ethical application of, uh, of force. You can have a growth mindset where you're always achieving for better. This is about us, about our guard, our reputation. We are all in this together. Outthink, outmaneuver, and outfight. If you wage war, do it energetically and with severity. We want somebody working for us that we have to hold back, not somebody that we have to keep pushing. All right, thanks again for joining us again for another episode of The Rave Report. I'm Chaplain Sanders. I'm on with Dr. David Dollar. Dr. David Dollar is a senior fellow of the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution and the host of the Brookings Trade uh, Podcast, Dollar and Cents. You're the first actual... uh, a, pod, a fellow podcaster that we've ever had. So uh, um, I'm interested in your feedback and see if uh, how we can improve the show. <laughs> so. I, I really enjoy doing other people's podcasts. I always learn and I think we should stick together. Oh, right. Yeah, well, that's that's a that's an interesting uh, perspective to have. Um, yeah, kind of cut your, uh, your bio a little short. Uh, you're also the leading expert on China's economy and the U.S.-China economic relations and from 2009 to 2013. Uh, Dr. Dollar was the tre- U.S. Treasury's economic and financial emissary to China based in Beijing, facilitating the macroeconomic and financial policy dialogue between the United States and China, which is pretty interesting. Uh, like you definitely are, uh, uh, you got more feathers in your hat than our normal uh, normal de- guests. So uh, we're looking forward to talking to you about it. Um, I guess to get us started, you did your bachelor's degree in Chinese history, and I know that um, at least for myself and especially my fellow officers, people that have bachelor's degrees, when we go through college, we get Western Civ, and so we learn Western history, but a lot of times we're completely just lost on Chinese history, and so when you start to try to understand and analyze a, a, a potential adversary, uh, you have no historical content. You don't know who who you're dealing with or where they come from. So, can you kind of get get us like kind of give us the wave tops on like how the Chinese people became the Chinese people? Great question. 
I went to college basically that year that President Nixon made his famous trip to China, 1972. So China was in the news. And of course, the Vietnam War was continuing. So I started studying uh, Asian studies, Chinese and Vietnamese history, Chinese language. Uh, and I think you're right that it's very important to understand history in order to deal with other countries and with potential adversaries. I lived in China for nine years. You know, you mentioned the time I did with Treasury, which was really interesting. I was also the World Bank country director for China for five years before that. And in my nine years, hardly a day goes by that people do not mention what they call the century of humiliation. You know, right. Basically, China had been the biggest economy in the world as recently as 1820. And then they went down a very dark road of isolationism and corruption, uh, first under an imperial regime and then uh, under the various warlords in the first part of the 20th century. So without going into too much detail, uh, it's really important to understand that history. The Chinese people are very proud you know, that they were the largest economy in the world. Uh, and then they, I think they're a little bit embarrassed that they went down this somewhat isolationist path uh, and then under Deng Xiaoping, starting in 1978, they they began to break out of that. Uh, but there's still definitely a sense that China's been treated badly by the world. A lot of people have a chip on their shoulder. Uh, I think it's important to understand that history in order to try to deal rationally with with China. Right. No, that's a good point. And I know kind of to, to so we just did a rotation through Ukraine and Poland, and obviously that that world is like you know kind of exploded since we we left. Um, but uh, like one of the things that we we studied pretty extensively going into is that that uh, Russia has kind of like a war myth. And so like uh, they, you know, they always have this like narrative that like people are always trying to invade. So therefore, they, like they have their hackles up all the time ready to like push back any potential invaders. And that's how they get their population to buy into things that they're doing. And um, and so that's kind of how you see that. So I guess like the kind of question with you, like a historical sense is like, what is the Chinese like war myth? Like, are they are, are they very aggressive saying that like we need to reclaim China's place in the world? And so we're going to go out there and take things. Or are they trying to say like that'll never happen again? And so we need to build a defensive structure up so that way nothing like that could happen. Another great question. You know, as I said, that Chinese have a fixation on this so-called century of humiliation, uh, we, we can't really call it completely a myth. You know, there was a lot of Western imperialism taking parts of China. Shanghai was divided up among, you know, a French quarter and an English quarter. And then, of course, Japan was the big imperialist, you know, that took a big chunk of Northeast China and, and other parts of the country. So, you know, China really was invaded by Western powers and by the Japanese, uh, and that was a terrible experience for them. And, you know, obviously they fought back. They were part of the whole alliance, you know, China with the United States and with Soviet Union, France, United Kingdom. You know, this was the alliance that was fighting back against fascism, including Japanese fascism. So, right. so there's definitely an important element of truth uh, to the Chinese century of humiliation. I just think that, that the world has treated China pretty well in the last few decades. You know, I happen right. to think that globalization is very good for developing countries. And we should give the Chinese people credit for climbing out of the hole they were in. Uh, but we also should recognize that the global system gets an important assist. You know, we've created a system where poor countries can work hard and move up the technology ladder 
and improve people's lives, reduce poverty. So to me, China is the big winner from globalization, uh, but we still run into this, you know, this element of uh, having of feeling that China has been humiliated uh, by the by the world and that it's not fully respected uh, in the current economic order. Right. So is that um, a view that you think is held like unilaterally across all age demographics? And so like, so it's not just like the old people that just remember it. It's just, it's like, even like your 20 somethings, they're like, Oh, remember like my grandfather back in the day said X, Y, or Z. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you know, my first experience on mainland China was teaching economics in 1986 as part of a Ford foundation program. I had an elite group of Chinese graduate students in Beijing and I used to see them informally, you know, my spoken Chinese was was pretty good at that point. I used to see them informally in their dormitory. Uh, and I, I guess I was a little bit shocked uh, at how nationalistic they were, you know, as young, somewhat globalized citizens or on their way to being globalized citizens. You know, they were very adamant that uh, Taiwan could never be separated from mainland China. They were very adamant that Tibet is part of historical China. Uh, and you know th that's those are people who were young in 1986. So I've kept in touch. You know some of them, of course, now are well into their 50s and 60s. Uh, but I've had a chance to give classes to younger Chinese over the last decade or so. You know people who are 20 within the last decade, and and you still run into this very strong nationalism uh, and a sense that China still hasn't been fully respected in the international system. What would like what would constitute like recompense? Like what would make them respected? Like, you know, because I mean, like they're really they're a leading economy. They're a force to be reckoned with. And so it's like it's not like uh, you know, like I'm looking across at my neighbor across the street that has a bunch of trash in his yard. And I'm like, look at this dirtbag, you know, country across the Pacific. I mean, they're, they're serious. So like what what will what will satisfy that that emotional need for them to be respected? Well, it probably changes over time, you know, but at the moment, I think all different elements in China are very aware that the U.S. is imposing export and technology and investment restrictions on China. You know, right. and, you know there's a certain element of propaganda in how this is treated in the, the media is very controlled, of course. But I think, you know, a lot of young people, most young people are going to college in China now. And, you know, they know how to get around China's controls. They can access the various international news sources. So I think they know reasonably well what's going on. Uh, right. And, you know, I think they uh, really bristle at these different uh, U.S. led sanctions. Uh, and it's a bad situation in that, from my point of view, it's completely reasonable for the U.S. to be worried about certain technologies diffusing the China because it is an authoritarian country run by a communist power, it, communist party. It's had the same Xi Jinping leader in place now for more than a decade, and he looks looks like he's just going to be continuing on. So what's rational hedging on the U.S. part, you know, a lot of different elements of Chinese society look at that and they see the U.S. trying to keep China down. Right. We have cabinet officials saying things like we're not trying to keep China down uh, and the Chinese people don't believe it because they look, they see this endless series of trade and investment technology restrictions coming out of the United States. And so they think, well, you know, the U.S. is playing a game where it's saying we're not trying to keep China down. But in fact, we've got these various technology and trade measures that are aimed at keeping China down. So, you know, that that's the current situation. Yeah, it's, it seems like a that's a really difficult situation to navigate because I'm guessing like, you know, so like we don't want 
the Chinese to copy certain things that 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 we're doing that gives us a a, a business edge, which is fair of any country uh, to do, I, I would imagine. Um, but then like that plays right into this narrative that like we're all about trying to humiliate China. So you're, like you're in this like negative like balancing loop if you want to use a, a systems thinking approach to where like it will just simply continue this way until you know the cows gonna come home. So like how do we? What's the the way to to go about breaking that, or is that too big of a question for you? No, no, it's what I think about all the time. You know, the rhetoric of our cabinet secretaries, I think, is quite good. It's it, certainly in the recent months, and we've had officials saying that the image we're to think about is what we call a small yard with a high fence, and that means identifying a truly small number of technologies that have dual use or military application, things like artificial intelligence and the very highest end semiconductors. you know. But small yard means we should recognize that there's really a pretty small number of these technologies. And then high fence means we should have very serious uh, export and investment controls, which, which we do at the moment. And I think the challenge for us is to keep that yard small because right. we have a lot of different interest groups just who for their own self-interest, they would like to be protected. Uh, and that's not a good strategy for our economy. You know, uh, right. you're, you're richer if you're integrated with the world. If your production is integrated with the world, that leads to more innovation uh, and higher standard of living. Uh, so we should be careful about various trade and investment restrictions. Uh, and I think we're being a little bit careless. Uh, you know, if I could just cite an example. Uh, right. You know, one of the measures we started with is a 25 percent tariff imposed on about half of what we import from China, okay? Right. So this is not small yard high fence, okay? This is like scattershot. Uh, and, <laughs> right. and the thing is, we, we benefit a lot from the things we import from China. I'm talking to you on a laptop computer that almost certainly was assembled in China, talking to you from a sound dampening mic that I'm sure was produced in China. You know, we get a lot of, of basic consumer type products uh, at low cost from China. Right. And it's right. not in our interest. To, I mean, the challenge, I think, is it's not in our interest to cut all that off. Uh, and yet, you know, China is a potential adversary. It's certainly not an ally or friend of the United States. And, and so that's a really big challenge for policy. Right. Yeah. Because you don't necessarily want to feed a system that's going to feed the army that you have to fight. But then at the same time, by doing that, you create a, a, a social and political dynamic where it incentivizes them to fight. So so like it's like kind of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. Absolutely. I've got colleagues who, you know, who who coined the phrase, you know, if we treat them like an enemy, they'll become an enemy. Yeah, there, there's a lot of truth to that, I think. Uh, and that, that's just uh, coming from a chaplain's perspective, like that's there's truth in human relations. And you, all you're doing is magnifying that that very core human dynamic truth out to like, you know, you know whole countries. Um, so like a, you mentioned that like a, like you're like you have a, an academic background in a Chinese language and then you've you also lived there. So I'm assuming that you're probably pretty fluent in uh, in Mandarin would be would be my guess. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, but I have to be honest, you know, I left China 10 years ago, I moved back to the United States, and I'm at the Brookings Institution, and my Chinese language skills have deteriorated. <laughs> right, I, right. I use them, I, I use them to some extent, but uh, my my heyday was about a decade ago. Right, well, so the, I guess the, the so what behind that question is, is that... Um, what we've we've learned is that like uh, that language has a real impact on the way you perceive the world and the way you process information and, and things. So like, can you kind of speak to that, like how the Chinese language actually like impacts the way that they 
they, they you know digest information and make sense of things? Yeah, no, I, I really think this is an important point. The languages are so different uh, mm -hmm. that it's sometimes quite hard to actually translate accurately from one to the other. And, and let me give you a really, really important example. You know, one of the thorniest things as we were restoring relations with Beijing, you know, was our position on Taiwan, right? Now, we do not recognize, Taiwan has not declared independence from China, and so we don't recognize it as an independent country that wouldn't even be relevant. Uh, but in the communique that reestablished our relations with the mainland, uh, we, we put in a phrase in English, something along the lines of the United States acknowledges Beijing's position that Taiwan is part of China. Okay. To me, that has like a very specific meaning in English. It's, we don't necessarily agree. We don't necessarily disagree. We acknowledge it. Okay. And then other things we say are, you know, that our red line is that uh, any further integration of Taiwan and the mainland has to be peaceful uh, and should be, you know, supported by the people of Taiwan. Okay. Now, the Chinese equivalent document says that the United, the best translation would be that the United States recognizes that Taiwan is part of China. So even today, decades later, this was like in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s. So decades later, uh, diplomats argue about these things. You know, Chinese side says, you acknowledge that Taiwan is part of China and now you're backing away from that. I'm sorry, they say you recognized that Taiwan is part of China and now you're backing away from that. And we say, no, 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 we acknowledge that that's your position. Right. right. But we didn't say we agreed with it, you know. So, you know, anyway, decades later, the two sides are kind of fighting over the language. And, uh, you know, the best scholars I talk to say that the English version and the Chinese version actually have somewhat different meanings. Right. right. So we reached an agreement. We signed it. Uh, I think we were clever enough to say that, you know, in case of dispute or disagreement, the English version is the official version. Uh, but of course, the Chinese feel like, well, they have a translation of the version uh, that says that the United States recognizes that Taiwan is part of China. So, you know, I, you know, and there are just lots of examples where the language, you know, is, is just really hard. I've, I've been in senior meetings. You know, I've had the benefit of sitting in with our cabinet officials, meeting the premier and even Xi Jinping. And sometimes, you know, even with top translators, we come out of the meetings and the American side would be arguing amongst ourselves about what was actually said. Right. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, just think about that. You're trying to negotiate trade and economic issues and and it's hard to agree on what actually was said, basically. So, yeah. Wow, yeah. It's like, how do you, I mean, that, so that explains, I had actually had a question to, uh, to ask you about like uh, the one China policy, because I never fully like understood like that, but like that that one kind of like, you know, I guess word really does make a lot of sense that we're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. like you know, this is how we're going to see things. And so I guess the Chinese are 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 looking at it that like uh, we like we pulled a fast one on them, or that we like, we we lied to them, um, which then of course you know like feeds right into the, this whole like narrative that like you know the 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 game is to to you know to humiliate China even further. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So what is, um, and we, we've kind of shot around this, but like a, one of the things that we try to to do when we're doing like mission analysis is is define what is winning for us. Like, is it to take this hill? Is it to get these people to quit? Or, or what, what's the, what, what is winning? So I guess like, what is winning for China? And like, in, in the, is it, is this like a oral domination of for Xi Jinping or is it something else? Like, so how do they, how do they assess like victory in their, their view? Right. So China scholars do disagree about this, but I would say the kind of dominant view is that is that China, the Communist Party leadership is not aspiring to world domination. Uh, they don't think that's realistic, given the various strengths of the United States. Uh, you know, there's certainly are elements in China who think the U.S. is in decline, uh, but there are plenty of senior people in China who have actually a lot of grudging respect for the United States. And do not think that the United States is in decline. So I, I think the best interpretation of their action is that they think they deserve more power and influence in the global system. You know, I, I don't want to hit you with too many numbers, but I think it's, this, oh, it's this one is I think is useful is the US economy last year produced $25.5 trillion of GDP. Okay? okay. China produced $18 trillion. So we're about 40% ahead. That's And of course, we have a lot fewer people. Right, right. Right. But then the next, the biggest economy in the world is Japan. Uh, and Japan has a $5 trillion GDP. So I think we have to understand we're in a world where the U.S. and China are just in a class by ourselves. You know, right. after the U.S. and China, it just drops off precipitously. And then everybody else, of course, is smaller than that because Japan's number three. Uh, and it's... You know, it's been hard for us to adjust to a world where China is roughly co-equal with the United States and they're a bigger trading nation. Right. right. So, uh, you know, what, what I spent a lot of my career working in the World Bank and where I see the Chinese frustration is they feel at this point, you know, they should have about the same voting shares in the IMF and the World Bank as China, as the U.S. does, you know, maybe right. not quite as many. Uh, but in fact, the historical legacy is they're, you know, they're behind Japan, you know, in right. terms of shares of the IMF and the World Bank. And, and, you know, there's we go out and we ask the Chinese to contribute to these institutions, and they do. They actually give a lot of money to the concessional window of the World Bank, which is used to help poor countries, mostly in Africa now. Uh, and they finance a lot of things in parallel with the International Monetary Fund. So they're supporting the institutions that we set up at the end of World War II for global financial and economic stability. And yet they have a tiny voting share and our Congress is completely opposed to any, you know, you could make those institutions bigger uh, and most of the additional capital would come from China and India and they could do more good in the world. Uh, we would still be the dominant shareholder. Actually, nobody's talking about making China equal, but you know, starting from where they are, you could dramatically increase China's share, India's share. Uh, right. And, and, you know, we're, we're resisting that. And again, plays into this whole narrative of, you yeah, know, you, right. you, know, you, you want our money, you want us to give money to the World Bank so it can help Africa. And you say it's important for the whole world's stability. Uh, but right. you won't increase our voting share in the IMF and the World Bank, which, to be perfectly frank, is really not all that important. Uh, it's not like there's a whole lot of close votes there. I mean, basically, the, the staff, you know, uh, decide on a lot of important issues, and the country shareholders generally go along. Right, right. So, like, like they're, what they're what they're looking at is, um, 
yeah, like there's it, more substantiation of, of, of this uh, of this narrative. Is there so? And I can understand why, like on a political scale, like a popular political scale, why, like, oh, we want to like concede like more voting rights in the in the World Bank to China would not sell very well, like especially in places like you know Texas and Georgia and things like that. But really, like from a, a grand strategy, you know, uh, like viewpoint, the trade-off seems to be almost asymmetrical. That like if it's not really going to be that consequential. If you can avoid a conflict by doing that and like de-escalate a lot of like tension, like like why wouldn't we want to do that? Like what what's the resistance there? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And you know, the, the relatively soon there's going to be a summit meeting in South Africa of the so-called BRICS nations, right? right. So that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, and they're talking about maybe adding some other big developing countries. And the thing is, so that's got China and Russia. Right, which are big authoritarian countries that we're worried about. But it's also got Brazil, India, and South Africa, all of which are vibrant democracies. And I'm not sure we would call them allies, but they're generally friends of the United States. Right. right? So we should be aware that we've got friends out there who are kind of lining up with China, at least on some issues. Right. Because you know, they 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 think there's a more general problem with the global financial system being too dominated by the U.S. and by rich countries, you know, and more and more of the world economy is in developing countries. And, you know, so the general issue is, do we want to uh, reform institutions like the IMF so the developing world has more say? And the risk is, if we don't, they may start alternative institutions. You know? Right, right. Basically saying, well, you know, we, we've tried to work through the existing institutions and you just kind of push us down at every turn. So let's start some competing. That's not going to be a nice world, you know, especially the IMF is the lender of last resort. And mm -hmm. I always say you don't want to have two lenders of last resort. This is just going to lead to a lot of confusion. Right. So eventually, like we have to like either give up some ground to maintain kind of a, a, a little bit of peace or we, you know, hold our own, and then we basically end up fighting the world before it's, you know, before it's over with. And that's kind of the trajectory that we're on. Like that's yeah. what I hear you saying. Yeah, yeah, and it's a tough issue. You know, it's a tough issue because obviously Russia, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. I'm kind of a hardliner about, you know, I think we should be supporting Ukraine, and I mean we are, and I think we should continue and give them the military support they need because I just think, you know, we don't want to live in a world where you can just invade a big country can just invade right. its neighbor. Uh, you know, in China and Russia, I wouldn't call them allies, but they definitely have something of a, you know, of a friendship. Uh, right. And, uh, you know, so it is it is worrisome, you know, that we've got these divisions in the world. But but that's why I put a lot of attention on our democratic allies. And, you know, you know there are quite a few different ones. You've got Japan, South Korea and Asia. You've got, you know, UK, France, Germany, others in Europe, uh, you've got, as I said, Brazil, India, I would call them pretty friendly countries. Uh, you know, I think we need to keep as many of these countries on our side as possible. And right. they are not interested in a sharp decoupling with China. Right. 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 China is the biggest trading partner for more than 100 different countries, you know, and people trade stuff because they benefit from it. You right. Know? Yeah. You got. Yeah, Germany can produce a lot of high-end cars. Uh, they export these around the world. They import a lot of consumer goods that keep their living standard up. So if you start saying we want to decouple from China, well, Germany right. has a much deeper relationship with China than we do. So now you're saying 
we want to move to a world where German people are a lot poorer. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's not a tough, that's not, not, that's not an easy sell. No, no. And so like, um, I guess the path forward would, would be to leverage some of those, the, those smaller countries that have a, a warmer relationship with China to, to try to broker maybe um, some sort of resolution to some of the issues that, that we have between us. Is that kind of like a, a way forward? That, I think that's a good idea. You know, um, uh, yeah, we have tried to build up our relations with countries like India and Brazil has always been some, something of a friend to the United States and some other countries in, in South America. So, you know, we definitely could make a deliberate effort to really can listen to these countries about how they think the world should be dealing with China. Right. So um, kind of like flipping the coin on its head, like if that's what's, if, if like getting more like kind of global stature, power, soft power uh, is that's winning for China, what is winning for the, for the U.S.? Is it completely just cutting China out totally or is it just maintaining a, a dominant stance without any serious challengers or, or you know, what is it? Right. So, I mean, I, I think it's, reasonable for the U.S. to aspire, you know, to continue to be either the largest economy in the world or, you know, if China overtakes us in 10 years or so, it'll just be a, by a small amount. And I don't think it'll last, actually. Right. So I think by the end of the century, the U.S. will still be the number one economy in the world. It's reasonable for us to aspire to that. Uh, and, you know, that's consistent with other countries benefiting as well. But, you know, we're a very innovative resource rich country. And so I think aspiring to be uh, about the biggest economy in the world and to have us, you know, a military that goes with that to, you know, secure our interests around the world, I think that's reasonable. I'd like to think that it's in our interest to have this world economic system, you know, be open to different players, you know, recognizing that we've got some authoritarian countries out there we're not completely happy with. It, it's hard because, um, I also have a fairly hard line on Iran, for example. I mean, I, I don't want to come across as uh, as a kind of a naive liberal. Right. Uh, there's, right. you know, there's, well, there's some tough, you know, there's some bad stuff out there in the world. But uh, and 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 I would think long and hard before I would be welcoming uh, Russia and Putin back into the global fold. I think the sanctions we put in place, you know, but yeah. I think we do have to be careful about deciding kind of what behavior is truly outside the realm of acceptable. Right, right. So, I guess invading your neighbors is one of those things, yeah. right? Yep, absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. So um, uh, one of the, the things that, uh, so like our guys are, are, are diehard like podcasters or podcast listeners and consumers and stuff. And, uh, and Peter Zion like went on Rogan and, and really kind of like broadcasted like these Chinese demographic problems. From a uh, from your like uh, your perspective on on the the whole thing, do you think that those uh, those demographic numbers are or for one are they are they true um, are they valid and then two is it going to have a massive impact on the way the China the Chinese economy is going forward? Yes and yes, right? <laughs> yeah, the the numbers you know the, those data are pretty good and the fertility rate in China has dropped very very low far below replacement. You know, they they ended their so-called one child policy, but we don't see, you know, women rushing to have a lot of babies. It's China's a place where real estate's expensive, education's expensive, it's densely populated. So I think their demographics are pretty cooked in. 
Uh, and they're going to have a big bulge of elderly people. They're going to have to put a lot of resources into taking care of them. Uh, and they're going to have a declining workforce. It's already started. There's still quite a few people in the countryside. So there's a little bit of potential to forestall things in the next decade. But as we get further out into the century, their workforce is going to decline quite precipitously. Uh, and it's very, very hard to maintain any kind of high economic growth rate once your labor force is declining like that. So right. I think it's it's a very serious economic issue for them. Uh, and it, it should, in you know, it's always hard to generalize about these things, but in my mind, it should make China somewhat less bellicose in the sense that they're going to have to put a lot of effort and resources into taking care of old people. You know, right. they should, you know, they, these are people who built up the country. So hopefully they treat them well. Uh, and it just naturally, you know, tends to divert resources away from military adventurism or other things. Right. I mean, there is another issue that China scholars argue about and th their domestic problems are really serious. The demographics, that's the long run problem. In the short run, they've got this real estate bubble that bursts. So, you know, one of their big developers is filing for bankruptcy in the United States, interestingly enough, because, you know, they'd floated quite a few bonds in U.S. dollars. And another big real estate developer there, these are all private firms. Another big one is defaulted on its bond payments, you know, and, and their fundamental problem is they've overbuilt real estate very seriously. So they have a lot of empty apartment buildings and it's just going to take a while. Right. Yeah. So so they've got very serious problems at home. They've got this tension with the United States that you and I have discussed. What we argue about is, does this make China more likely to do adventurous things outside? Are they more likely to invade Taiwan, say, as a distraction? Uh, or are they more likely to turn inward? Right. And to come back to where we started, my reading of Chinese history is when domestic things are bad, they turn inward. You know, right. Leaders spend most of their time worried about the real estate bubble, the demographics. The demographic thing is very complicated because in general, the workforce is declining. But you've probably read there's 21% youth unemployment. And what's, right. what's, what's happened is most young people go to college now. And that could potentially be a good thing. Uh, but they're coming out and, you know, they're not going to go to work in manufacturing industries that are the strength of Chinese economy. They, they want to go to work in service sectors that mostly support consumption. You know? Right. And, you know, China's consumption is weak. Uh, they, they need to get a dynamic going where these young people get hired and earn income and then consume. But they haven't got that dynamic. They've got young people living at home with their parents not earning income, not consuming, uh, and and not contributing to the real estate demand either for that matter. So anyway, they've got very serious domestic problems. And I think the leadership spends most of their time worried about that. And I think on some of these external issues, what they don't want, what they don't want is for China to be humiliated in some visible way. Right. So I think Xi Jinping is determined not to be the party secretary who loses Taiwan. But I don't accept that he's the party secretary who has to invade Taiwan, that would be extremely risky. And on top of these economic issues, they could almost certainly look forward to a decade or more of very poor economic performance because we would sanction them in the way we've sanctioned the Russians, if or maybe we'd go in and fight. Right. Uh, you know, but any scenario there is going to be a disaster for China. 
And I just don't subscribe to the view that you know, the way you deal with these very difficult domestic issues is you go out and start an external fight. Right. Yeah. It seems to me like if you look at the, the Ukraine fight, um, and I was just talking about this with one of our old uh, battalion commanders, um, that they expend like the both the Russians and the Ukrainians and the whole you know train of support that comes with that expended an extreme amount of, of munitions, equipment, people, stuff very early on in the war. And now it's just like this scramble to try to like supplement the the ongoing fight. And it would seem to me that if you're already having internal, you know, fractures, struggles, problems and stuff, a a you know cost like that is going to be very difficult to replace, especially when you're already kind of I isolated from the rest of the world already. You don't have all of Europe that's just like, well, here, take our stuff and, and off you go. So it doesn't seem to be like, – I kind of like agree with you that it doesn't seem to be very likely that they would want to invade Taiwan or do anything else uh, like that. Um, right, and you know they have gotten a lot of military arms from Russia. Uh, and I think they're watching and they're kind of distressed at how badly the Russian technology is doing and the Russian strategic approach. Uh, and, you know, the Chinese are good at studying things. So one thing they're going to want to do, well, first, they're going to wait and see how this turns out. It's very important that we make sure that this does not turn out well for Russia and Vladimir Putin. Right. The, right. the end lesson has to be you invade your neighbor and it pretty much destroys your your economy and, and, and sets you back for decades. Right. Uh, so they're going to watch what happens, and they're watching the military tactics, the use of the equipment, the Western technology. Western technology is superior. Yeah, right. Yeah, I just uh, was just reading before we uh, we got on here about um, there were like I think the U.S. Navy put out a report and saying that they were seeing that more Chinese uh, drones were being used, and like they were basically kind of trying to copy what was going on with Ukraine in the South China Sea with these with these drones. It's pretty interesting to see that that. Um, we like you know we just produced a uh, like an 11 minute video on the uh, the Royal United Services Institute paper on the lessons learned in Ukraine and so like we're studying what's going on in U Ukraine and to see our ad our potential adversary also doing the same things and and, and copying some of the same lessons that, that we're learning uh, it's kind of kind of interesting um, yeah that's why you know there's a little bit of softening among some members of Congress on the support for Ukraine and and I just think that you know Ukraine is important in and of itself. But it's also a very important message to the world about U.S. resolve uh, and right. about what are true global norms. Right, right. So um, kind of saying on, on the, the tone of like people groups, um, my understanding of, of China is that like it's not just like one people group. It's several people groups that are kind of like mixed together and that the word China itself actually means like all of us together. Is that is that? that true well it's a little bit more complicated than that okay so most chinese are part of the same ethnic group called the han and that is the largest ethnic group in the world by a mile because other big places like india have a lot of different major ethnic groups uh, right. and, and then nobody else is in the same ballpark with china and india uh, so 95 percent of the population is han chinese you know the well-known minorities like tibetans and uyghurs pretty relatively small in number compared to 1.4 billion but what you're saying that resonates with me is that uh, you know the these han chinese are spread over a vast territory and the language has really evolved into very very different dialects that are incomprehensible to each other you know, oh, so wow. the same way that french and italian have some kind of connection but that doesn't mean that that you can automatically understand one language if you know the other. That's true for major Chinese dialects. 
You know, oh, the okay. classic example is Cantonese, you know, Guangdonghua. It's, right. it's so different from Mandarin Chinese that you cannot understand each other. But it's written with the same Chinese characters. That was the logic of the Chinese characters is that people from China who are literate can can write down a note, you know, write down a note saying, you know, where's the best dumpling house, you know? Right. Um, they may not be able to understand each other uh, traditionally, you know, but they could write it down. Now, the communists, the communists, I think, have done some things that have been quite helpful for China's development. And one was to push, you know, all the schooling to be in Mandarin Chinese. You know, everybody learns Mandarin Chinese. So at this point, the dialects are still important, but people can communicate with each other. You know, if you go to Canton province, Guangdong, you know, basically uh, everybody there knows how to speak Mandarin and can talk to you know, the, the bureaucrats who come down from Beijing or talk to someone like me. We had a lot of World Bank activity in Guangdong, uh, but in their own homes, they still tend to speak Cantonese, you know, which is a very different dialect. And there are a number of these major dialects that are that are so different uh, that you can't really understand each other except through the written characters. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I guess in a, in a digital age, the written character might be arguably more important than uh, than the spoken, you know, side of it. Um, well, it was always a benefit for me, like there are these modern programs, you know, the frustration of learning Chinese characters, it's not phonetic, you know, and that, that's why people can speak it differently, uh, but the characters have the same meaning. Um, right. But uh, frustration for me always was, I would, you know, I was pretty good, but, you, you know, you'd read... Uh, try to read a newspaper and the first 10 characters you would recognize, you know, it'd be something like, you know, uh, President Xi Jinping told uh, the United States ambassador, and then there'd be one character you didn't understand. So, <laughs> right. You know, what did he tell him? What did he tell him, you know? Yeah, right. Right. But the modern, uh, with the modern technology, you can read that like on your, on your tablet. And then when you get to a character you don't recognize, you just put your finger on it and it tells you, you know, how it's pronounced and what's the English meaning of it, you know? Right. So and that so, makes a huge difference. So if you know 90% of the characters in a newspaper article, you can still read it pretty well because you just you just keep, uh, you know, calling up the meaning for the ones that you don't know, and it works pretty well. Right, right. It's modern technology. So, like, um, would you say that, like, you know, like, I know, like, at least ancient-ish Chinese history, like, there's a lot of, like, you know, in civil infighting, like, a lot of civil wars and things like, like that. Um are those like different, I guess, like subsets of, of Chinese people, um, are they still relevant today or have they pretty much overcome that with a lot, a lot of this, uh, you know, like standardization of the language and things like that? That's a good question. I mean, in those historical epics, when there was not a unified dynasty for the whole country, but there was fighting among, you know, different smaller kingdoms or warlords, you know, it did tend to be based on these, uh, you know, these these sort of uh, geographic divisions. Right, so right. you'd have a kingdom in the southwest uh, around what's modern-day Sichuan, and you have a kingdom in the northeast around modern-day Shandong, and the differences in the language, you know, would certainly yeah. a factor, uh, and, and that would definitely, uh, you know, you, you definitely had periods like that. Now, one of the things you, you hear from a lot of different uh, Chinese of different stripes is that you know, they perceive these periods of struggle to be ones where there was a lot of famine and starvation and killing, et cetera. So I do think there is a there is a kind of a national 
you know, desire to have a unified country and to avoid and to avoid, you know, falling into these kind of regional conflicts. Right, right. So, like, like if they, if a a internal like event were to happen where where they they started to see like a, an economic downturn or whatever it, they, it wouldn't devoid like devolve into like you know like so you know like if iran fell apart like they would all be fighting each other and stuff but like if china were to, were to start to fall apart it would be more of a narrative of like we're all different but we're all chinese so let's kind of get through this together kind of thing yeah i mean there are some you know I, there definitely are some scholars around the world who, you know who think that that china could disintegrate into different you know, smaller countries. I, I personally think that that seems pretty far-fetched because uh, there's a lot of desire, you know, to have a big unified market and a big unified country. And there's a lot of pride in China's achievements. You know, they're trying to, you know, send rockets into space and, right. and uh, you know, do, do various things. There's, there's a lot of pride in that. I mean, you look at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. I mean, there was a huge nationwide pride in that. Right. Yeah, I always um I brought this up. We talked to a uh, major Jess Dawson with the Army Cyber Institute, and I, I brought this up in there because um the um if you want, there's a movie. Have you ever seen the movie Hero with Jet Li? Yeah, at all. Mm. All right. So it's it's interesting. So it's uh the I guess the narrative of the, of the movie is not necessarily relevant, but it's it's a very like pro Chinese nationalism sort sort of uh, thing. Looking back on history and like how we got to this point. And there's a, a point in there where they're uh, they're bombarding this school with arrows. And if you listen to the um, the English version, no subtitles, whatever, and they're always speaking English. Um, the the school teacher stands up and he goes like, "We're going to get through this through the the power of the written war- word." And he sits down and he writes. And it's a big scene. But if you go back and you watch the the Mandarin version with the English subtitles on there, where it's a direct translation, he says it's through the power of our culture. And then all of a sudden, I like I. I remember reading like, like the hundred year marathon where it's like culture is this big thing for, uh, for them more so than it is like where, where we celebrate, like I, I'm an Irish American, I'm a German American, I'm an African American. They don't do that. It's like, we're Chinese. And then everything else is just kind of like, whatever, is that a good like interpretation of that, that whole uh, dynamic? Yeah. I think that's a fair interpretation. You know, as we discussed, there are these regional differences in, in dialects, which can be fairly serious. So there is a certain, uh, identification as you know coming in the same way you might have someone in the U.S. say I'm a southerner you know or I'm a northern right. uh, but I think prime just like in the United States I think primary identification is with the nation right right okay yeah and so it seems to be like kind of like um I remember reading that like uh, the uh, one of the big things for them was to to make sure that and I guess this kind of goes back to what we're saying with like the the you know the center of humiliation that that Chinese culture is preserved and, and is perceived well in the world and that's kind of like the big thing uh, for them is that is that fair? Yeah, I think that's important. You know, uh, you know a lot of a lot you know a lot of countries make these efforts to promote themselves around the world. You know, we have this uh, you know we've had various uh, manifestations of this in our in our state department where we, you know, set up some kind of information office in different places. So people could come in and have access to, you know, American media or learn about America. Right. Uh, the Chinese version of that has been to promote what are called Confucius institutes around the world. Right. And, you know, this is, that. yeah, it's been somewhat <laughs> controversial because, you know, uh, uh, it, you know, China to some extent uses those to, propagandize, I think is just the honest word, you know, for example, right. uh, 
They might use it to push their particular line on Tibet uh, or you know, to try to argue that they're treating Uyghurs fairly and that the West is misinformed about that kind of issue. You know, they get into some sensitive things. Uh, and, and, you know, in general, of course, we, we respect, you know, free speech. Uh, not clear you can go, you know, go to the events in that, in those Confucius Institutes and really just say what you want. Right, right. Do you, like, is there any like indicator that like they're pushing um, any sort of narratives that may be like maybe uh, fundamentally toxic to like a free speech environment, like like uh, divisive? Like we know that the, the Russians use like misinformation. They'll find a, a, a divide inside of uh, American society and then they'll just amplify it, even if it's like I mean, you read the book like Like War, they're talking about like promoting flat earthers and stuff, not because they care anything about flat earth. They just know that it's, it's a divisive you know topic. Do, do the, the Chinese like use any of those institutes or any of those uh, methodologies that, that we know of? Well, they, their media certainly likes to harp on negative things about the United States. Right. Um, you know, I, my experience is, in general, there's a lot of admiration for the United States and, you know, respect for certainly American technology and our achieve, various technological achievements. Um, and then I think, in, in, you know, because China's a big, diverse country, uh, but certainly you got a lot of students now who come to the U.S. to go to college or more likely graduate school. And uh, I would say a lot of them have a kind of grudging respect, you know, right. for the quality of American universities and the, and the results of free speech. But at the same time, the Chinese media, you know, hammers away at, at uh, mass shootings and fentanyl deaths, deaths of despair. You know, they like to... Um, you know, they like to paint some some dark pictures about various things happening in the United States. Right. Well, it seems to me that like if you really wanted to, both to win, if, like you know the the U.S. basically not to have an adversary across the Pacific, the Chinese to be respected, is that like you would just stop doing that, like and just be just let you know, let let the the guys that, that came over to Stanford go back with their their fancy degree, leave the country, and be like, well, you know, it's not so bad over there. It could be you know better over here, or maybe you know we can get along better. Like, why don't they do that? And so. Yeah. yeah, I don't have any simple answer to that. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I do think that some of the bad dynamic that's developed kind of comes back to it's 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 hard to expect either the U.S. or China to be the first mover in trying to improve certain things. Right, right. Um, who's going to be the first person to give up a little to to try to make things better? Yeah, yeah. Right. You got two proud people, two big, powerful countries. China, as I said, tends to have a chip on its shoulder. So it's really hard to get them to go first. And right. then on the United States side, we have a lot of legitimate complaints, you know, right. especially in the trade and investment side. You know, a lot of American companies feel that that their intellectual property was violated or that they've been restricted in what they could be doing in China. So, so when you get back to some of those issues, like why don't we uh, you know, accept them having a larger weight, say, in the World Bank and the IMF, you know, a lot of response in the U.S. would be, well, they haven't earned it. You yeah, know, you know, right. There, there are all these bad practices, and, and you can point to some good practices, but on balance, you know, we don't think they've earned it. Okay, and then that, that makes sense. Yeah, hard to argue against that. Yeah, yeah, like, like you can see the, um, 
like once again, like I'm a chaplain at, at heart. And so I see like conflict and trying to like diagnose the conflict. I can see the, the legitimate complaints on both sides of the aisle. Um, the, the frustrating part is that like the way that you get through that is like, you need to have like somebody step in the middle and just say like, okay, like we're going to focus on this one thing and make that better. And then, okay, now we're going to focus on this next one thing. And I just don't see anybody doing that, you know, like uh, nobody st stepping forward. Yeah, no, I think what happened, I think we went through a period, you know, I was in U.S. Treasury during the first Obama administration. And I think, you know, I think we went through a period where we were trying to tackle a lot of specific things that may seem small, you know, like right. for someone like me, you know, historically, it's been a big headache constantly getting visas. Uh, you know, even when I was based in China, both for the World Bank and for the U.S. Treasury, uh, in my memory, I may get, be getting this wrong, but my memory is I had to get a new visa every year. Right. Uh, and for people who are not living there, I mean, they have to typically get a new visa every time. So, you know, the two sides created 10-year visas that were eligible for certain categories. Uh, I, I don't think it applied to diplomats, frankly, but, uh, you know, for business people, someone actually doing business in, right. in each other, or students. You know, we created a system where some Chinese student would come to the U.S. for a three-year program, right? And we would give them a one-year visa, uh, and then they'd have to go back to China and stand in line at our embassy to get another visa. Uh, <laughs> you know, and it's just kind of a silly little inefficiency, basically. Yeah, right. Yeah, so we made some progress on creating longer-term visas for certain categories. Just simple things like that actually can generate quite a bit of goodwill. Yeah, so it starts to kind of go a long ways. Well, we're running close to an hour, and I, I don't want to keep you past. I know you're probably a pretty busy guy, but uh, one of the things that that I always like to to ask people that come on the show is just like, what are you reading? And especially for you, it's like, so like I, my question is kind of twofold. And one, what are you reading? And two, what should we be reading? As, as you know, like I grew up in South Arkansas, joined the Army, and now I'm in the Washington National Guard. I don't know anything really about China. I've never been there or whatever else. So like, how do I, you know, kind of like, honed edge of, uh, of uh, for myself so that way I can uh, you know be better uh, at interpreting what, what's going on in the world. Right. So I, I'm a bad person to ask this question, frankly, because uh, yeah, I've gotten away from reading books about China. There are a lot of books about China. Um, yeah. I, I tend to read more articles and blogs. You know, there's just a lot of debate about all these issues you and I just talked about. So I read a lot of short things. I don't read so many books. Uh, one that was put out recently by a friend of mine is called uh, Making Sense of China's Economy by Tao Wang. You know, she's someone who uh, came from China and she got a PhD at NYU like myself, but she's slightly, certainly somewhat younger than me, but she's based in Hong Kong, uh, working for one of the big international banks. And okay. so I think if you just really want to understand the economy and some of these economic issues, I definitely recommend that. Uh, and then, as I said, there are lots of books about China. I, I, I don't have a particular recommendation. Right, right. Just just start reading on it. <laughs> so well, there you go. Well, Dr. Dollar, thanks so much for uh, for coming on. It's been uh, great. Super uh, awesome to to hear 
all about the uh, that dynamics and it absolutely gives us kind of like a, a foundation so this will be a series you're we start we get kind of like the the foundational episode for the series as we kind of progress on and try to really understand uh china's role in the world in a grand strategy sense culture and then uh, eventually going to get to like the, you know what does it mean for us like the what does it mean for the you know the 81st striker brigade in the washington national guard like what do we need to know and, and be ready to, to to do or not do so, so yeah, things- I think it's great what you're doing. And I would just encourage all the listeners to have mm-hmm. an open mind and to realize that these issues we've discussed are very complicated. Yeah. So if somebody tells you, well, you know, I've seen the secret communiques and Xi Jinping is going to invade Taiwan by 2026, please take that with enormous skepticism. Yeah. It may happen. I'm not saying it can happen, uh, but there are a lot of possibilities and it probably isn't determined. Right. So it right. probably depend on how we behave and what happens in the world. Uh, right. But there's just, sense. you know, we're in a moment where there's huge uncertainty about what's going to happen in China and what's going to happen in the world, what's going to happen in the United States. Right. No, that makes sense. Well, uh, Dr. Dollar, thanks so much for coming on. I really enjoyed it. Yep. Okay. Thanks a lot. This has been the Raven Report Podcast, the official podcast of the 81st Striker Brigade Combat Team. If you're interested in seeing if you have what it takes to join our team, go to our Instagram and click the link in the bio. Click the join link and connect with us.